I sent out an email this past week uh, for looking and soliciting for things that you guys have learned so far through our journey of Genesis. We are 48 chapters in out of 50 in the book of Genesis. It has been quite a long journey through the book of Genesis. It's been a year we've been in the book of Genesis. It's amazing. And it's been a dream come true for, for me because I've always wanted to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Genesis and really dig into some deep stuff in Genesis. And you can spend a lifetime in this book alone, studying it and, and going through it. But I had some good feedback from, from different people on what they learned about the book of Genesis. If you haven't gotten your, I'm just looking for feedback from you guys. What principles have you learned? Or what, what information have you learned? If you think of it this coming week, shoot me an email. And the email, um, my email is just gabrielrutledge at gmail. Um, next week at Sukkot, I want to read some of those and kind of review a little bit. But the book of Genesis is so fascinating because it's like a little Bible in and of itself. It, within the book of Genesis has the story of the gospel. And it has the, the beginning and it has the end. It has the end from the beginning, right? So in there, there's all these, um, it's not very explicit now. It's very prophetic and very kind of um, cryptic at times, talking about the end. And today we're going to talk about the end quite a bit as well. Um, but if you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 48. And that's where we're going to start off today. We've got to cover two chapters and we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to keep an eye on, on time. I'll get us out of here at like 2.30 to 3, the latest. Is that in the morning? Yeah. So, you guys are laughing. I don't Genesis 48, verse 1. It says, Vayachi acharei hadavarim. A while later after these things, you could translate that. Vayachi, it was. Acharei after hadavarim. After these matters, or these um, devarim sometimes can be words. Sometimes devarim can be events or things that have happened. Someone told Yosef, Joseph, that his father was ill. And the, the word there is chole. Chole. It's actually, what's the type of bread that we eat on Shabbat? Chala. Chala bread. It's the same, the same word, essentially. Chala. Chala, it, it is... Um, if you look at the tradition of where we get challah bread and why it's braided together, challah is the broken pieces of bread. It's, it dates back to the times when we would have to take um, a portion of our dough and, and offer it to the Lord. And that portion would be pulled aside and would be saved. And then at, at Shabbat on Friday night, you take those portions and you weave them together into one loaf of bread. They are the, chal- the chalot, the pieces, the pieces of bread. Okay, And then on Shabbat, we have two loaves of challah, and we say the blessing and we offer them to the Lord. We say, right? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And that's the pieces bread, the challah. So it means it's unwhole. Okay? That's the essence of choleh, is that it's unwhole. It's the opposite of whole. So it's saying here that his father was becoming unwhole, that he was becoming ill, he was sick, he was weak. All those would work just fine. He took with him his two sons, uh, Manasseh, which means to forget something, and then Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. And Yaakov was told, here comes your son, Yosef. So Israel gathered up his chazak, his strength, and he sat up in his bed. And Yaakov said to Yosef, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz. And El Shaddai is one of the many names and titles of God, the creator El Shaddai, it means God, and then Shaddai, it comes from the root uh, Sade. A Sade is a field. 
And shadayim are actually breasts, like a mammal has. And so it's a field and it's breast and it's Shaddai is like the God who is the all provider of every stage of your life. Okay, that's the name of El, that's the essence. Then when you call God El Shaddai, you're saying he is my ultimate provider of every stage of my life. It says, he appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me saying, I will make you. And here he does a play on words sort of. He says, I will make you like Ephraim. I'll make you fruitful and numerous. And I will make you a group of peoples. And I will give this land to your descendants to possess forever. And which land is he talking about? Is he talking about Egypt? No, he's talking about Canaan, right? Canaan, which is now the land of Israel. In verse 5. So, so in other words, Jacob's backing up and he's saying, hey, let me review what God told me when, he re- when El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz. He told me that I would be really fruitful and my descendants would become many peoples and that I would possess the land of Canaan forever. In verse 5, he says, Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Mitzrayim in Egypt, before I came to you in Mitzrayim, they are mine. And what are their names? Ephraim, doubly fruitful, and to forget. Where I want to forget. Okay? You remember, it's the stages of Joseph's life as he's naming his children. One was, Joseph wants to forget the trauma he just had to go through. He was betrayed by his brothers, he was a slave, and then he became elevated, and he was given a wife, and then he had a son, and he named him, I want to forget, basically. And then he had a second son, and you see Joseph's beginning to turn again, and he's saying, you know what? I'm going to give him a name which means doubly fruitful. Because I remember my father talking about the promises given to him from El Shaddai, saying that you will be very fruitful. So here, the son that he thinks is dead is having a son, is, is having a son, and I'm going to name that son doubly fruitful. So he's beginning to kind of look back on his heritage and say, Maybe I need to reconnect with my long-lost heritage here. In verse 5, he says, now you're, oh, I'm sorry, we're on verse uh, 6. We're in the middle of verse 5, sorry. He says, they are to be mine, Ephraim and Manasseh, as Reuven, Reuben, and Shimon, as they are mine. So he's saying that Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just like Reuben and Simeon are mine. Why is that significant? Who are Reuben and Simeon? They're firstborn sons. They're the first two, 12, first two of 12 sons given to Jacob. And Jacob is saying to Joseph, your sons I'm adopting as sons. Not only that, but they will almost in a way take the place of the two firstborn sons that I had. Fruitful and forget. That they are mine. He says, the children born to you after them will be yours. But for the purposes of inheritance, they are mine. They're to be counted with their older brothers. Wow, that's, that's really important and profound. So in other words, he's elevating Joseph to almost a, a place of a patriarchal, patriarchal status. And he's bringing Ephraim and Neshe in and saying, he, these guys are like one of my 12 sons. To the extent that they're like the firstborn of my 12 sons. In verse 7, now as for me, when I came to Badan Aram... Rachel died suddenly as we were traveling through the land of Canaan while we were still some distance from Ephrat. So I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, also what we become later known as Beit Lechem. Beit Lechem, which is the house of bread. And who was born much later in Beit Lechem? Yeshua, Bethlehem, right? In verse 8, Israel then noticed Yosef's sons and asked, Who are these? And, and Yosef answered his father, They are my sons whom God has given me. Yaakov replied, 
I want you to bring them here to me so that I can bless them. Verse 10. Now Israel's eyes were dim with age so that he could not see. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? Who's, who's Isaac, yeah, Isaac. His eyes were dim with age and he could not see. So Yosef brought his sons near to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see any of you again, but God has allowed me to see your children too. So Yosef brought them out from between his legs and prostrated himself on the ground. These, these kids are maybe about, I don't know, between six or nine years old, give or take. In verse 12, Yosef brought them out from between his legs and prostrated himself on the ground. Then uh, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So he crossed his arms, didn't he? He intentionally crossed his hands, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, typically it would have been the custom to put your right hand on the firstborn and then your left hand on the subsequent children. And then he blessed Joseph and he said, The God who, whose presence my fathers Abraham and Yitzchak lived, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, and the Hamelech, it's, it's, in Hebrew it's Hamelech Hagoel. The Hamelech Hagoel is the, the angel, the redemption who has rescued me from all harm. Bless these boys and may they remember who I am and what I stand for. And likewise, my fathers, Avraham and Yitzchak, who they were and what they stood for. And may they grow into teeming multitudes upon the earth. How many of you, that's your prayer, that your kids remember who you are and what you stood for, right? How many of you want your kids to remember what your grandparents were and what they stood for? I do. How many of you are standing for anything? You know, it's easy to say, I want my kids to remember what I stood for. Well, in order to do that, you've got to stand for something. You have to be courageous for something. You have to be someone who's virtuous and full of character. And they may say, at the moment, like, man, my dad is a real stickler about... Um, you know, not playing video games on Shabbat or not working on Shabbat or whatever this on Shabbat. But it's like later in life, my kids will remember my dad stood for the Lord's Day. My dad stood for Shabbat. He was, he was a man of character and he was consistent in that. doesn't mean that you have to be mean or grumpy or dictatorial. It just means that you're someone who stands for something or, or innocent human life. You know, we are called to protect innocent human life above all else. And it doesn't matter what shade of color or what political affiliation or whatever. If it's an innocent human being, it is to be protected at all costs, right? What a good thing to stand on and stand for and be remembered for. And it says in verse 17, When Yosef saw that his father was laying his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. It actually says that his eyes became like evil. <laughs> he had a bad eye. And he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and place it instead on Manasseh's head. And Yosef said to his father, don't do it that way, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know that, my son, I know it. Was Joseph justified in being worried about this situation? Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, but why would he be worried? Let me give you three reasons why Joseph's worried about this going down this way. Number one, because Jacob, if you recall, 
stole the blessing from Esau, thus causing exile and division in the family. That's Jacob that did that, remember? The request of his mother, encouragement of his mother. He took that blessing. He switched it up, didn't he? A second reason that Joseph should be concerned is that, remember, Jacob favors Rachel over Leah because of his eyes. He sees something beautiful. Even though, you know, technically he should have received Leah as a firstborn daughter. But that caused strife and division, didn't it? In the family. <laughs> a lot of it. Verse th- and, uh, I'm sorry, the third reason that Joseph should be concerned is that Jacob favors the younger of his sons. Joseph and Benjamin over the older of his sons, doesn't he? He places higher priority over Joseph and then later over Benjamin and seems to care less about his sons, you know, Reuben, Simeon, and Judah. And does that cause any division? It does, doesn't it? So Joseph is watching this unfold and here his father who has, a, has this pattern, this habitual pattern of switching up firstborn and who should go where and what and confusing things or purposely misleading people. He switches his hands and he crosses his hands. And Joseph, of course, is like, no, dad, I know what that leads to. Don't do that. He's very justified in that. But Jacob says, I know, I know. This time I'm doing the right thing. He says he too will become a people and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. And his descendants will grow into a melo hagoyim, a, a, a big nation, a full nation. And then he added this blessing onto them that day. He says, Israel will speak of you and their own blessings when they say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, that's something that we do in my home. I have sons. And so when we gather for Erev Shabbat dinner on Friday nights and Stacy lights Shabbat candles and we have the dinner late and we have challah and the, and the juice, I bring the boys up and I, and I say, uh, what is it in Hebrew, Eli? I just blinked out. Uh, no, I can't do it in Hebrew. I almost have to sing it. But anyways, I say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh over them. Um, it's gotten bothered me that I can't remember it. I just did it last night. Wow. I'm pulling a Bob Sanders moment. Yesimcha Elohim ke Ephraim Bachim There it is. Yesimcha Elohim ke Ephraim Bachim May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And why do we pray that over these boys? Every single Friday night I've been doing that since the day they were just about born. Well, yeah, the other two younger were since the day they were born. Um, every Friday night. Why? Because I want them to be like Ephraim and Manasseh. <laughs> why do I want them to be like Ephraim and Because here... The firstborn and the secondborn were crossed, weren't they? Did it cause any division between Ephraim and Manasseh? Did it? No. They're the only two brothers in Scripture that we know of in the Bible that never did fight. That saw through the purposes of God and carried through the purposes of God and plans of God without ever quarreling amongst themselves. It's amazing. It's a miracle. And if you have sons or you've had brothers, you know that... Brothers who don't quarrel, there must be something uh, going on there. It must be really close to God. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you go into a Jewish home on any Friday nights, it's an observant home, this is what's done. This is, this is a custom. This is a tradition. But it's carried on from week after week after week. And thus he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And they didn't fight. Amazing. 
In verse 21, Israel said to Joseph, You see that I'm dying, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back to the land of your ancestors. Moreover, I am giving you a shechem, a, a, like a, a share, a portion, uh, one above your brothers, because I captured it from the emory with my sword and my bow. So he's elevating Joseph above his brothers, and he's adopting these two. And some, some people would say that this is maybe a prophetic picture of the adoption of the body of Messiah, the multitudes of the nations, the Gentiles, the goyim. And that some people, you know, as one commentary was saying it, it's through the cross that the body of Messiah is adopted into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting. I don't know. And why didn't Joseph get a portion? Joseph got a portion above his brothers, and he was almost elevated above. Them. But yeah. he didn't have a tribe. Right, yeah, and that's the thing. is like Joseph, Joseph isn't really called a tribe, but Ephraim and Manasseh kind of are. Um, Joseph is kind of the connector piece. He's Yosef, if you remember, it comes from the Hebrew, ver- Hebrew verb asaf, which means to gather together. And um, Joseph is just serving as the connector. He's the gatherer. He's the shepherd. And then he kind of diminishes a little bit. But he brings family reconciliation, doesn't he? Um, if you look over at, uh, I think I've got Galatians 4 somewhere in my slides. I think they're all mixed up here. I thought it here. Galatians 4. But when the set time had playoma is like uh, to fulfill, fully come. It's at its its um, pinnacle. God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those under the law. Don't think for a second that he's he's redeeming, rescuing them from the law that he gave them. That wouldn't make sense. But rather, he's redeeming them from the curse of the law they brought on themselves through their disobedience of that law. Okay? That we might receive what? Adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, Paul says. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Those are terms of very close endearment. So what Paul is saying is that because of God's great mercy... Even though we were in defilement of the law and under the curse of the law that disobedience brings, through his spirit, we are adopted as his sons and we can cry out, Abba, Father. You know, in in Israel last month, um, I was walking around, you walk around the streets of Israel and you hear children in different places and different, you know, if you're in a bus or you're just at 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 a swimming hole or whatever, and you hear children, they'll cry out, Abba, Abba. You hear that all around, Abba. And, and Israeli kids are some of the most feral kids ever. <laughs> They're all running around, swimming and jumping off of things and smoking cigarettes and everything in between. I've <laughs> seen it. But they just, eventually they'll, they'll stop and they'll say, Abba, Abba, right? And then the Abba will say, you know, Bo, Bo, come, come. It's like that, that term of endearment. It's like we get to call the creator Abba. It's amazing, right? Since you are no longer a slave, but you're God's children, and since you are his children, God has made you also an heir, an heir, an heir to these promises. In the Greek, it's kleron omos, which is like kleros is the um, lots that are cast, and then you're, you're a partaker of the lots that are cast. In ancient times, um, a lot of people's estates, when they died, were divided up by casting lots. 
And that's how you got your share of your inheritance. So we're part of that. We get to be part of the casting of the lots, is what Paul is saying through, our, through Messiah. Um, spoiling on the future of my... Let's keep going here. We're on verse... We're on chapter 9, right? Or chapter 49, right? Right. We're doing good. We're doing good. So it says in verse 1, Then Yaakov called all his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and I will tell you... So he's saying, Asaf, which is the same root as Yosef. Asaf yourselves together, and I will tell you what will happen in the last days. And the, the Hebrew, it's acharit hayamim. Acharit hayamim. It's the days that come later. And, and Hebrew eschatology, which is the, the, how you view the end times, what the end of the age looks like, is that there is an age of tohu, which is an age of chaos. And then with Abraham and with the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and Moses is the age of Torah. The age of God's, God's progressively revealing his character and his will to the humanity that he created. And then there's an age of a Messiah, Mashiach. But before that, you have this time of trouble. You have the birth pains of Messiah. And then those we would call the Acharit Hayamim, the last days, the transitional days before the coming of the kingdom. Okay? And he's saying, let me tell you what will happen in those last days. Which is interesting. Are any of these guys going to be alive in the last days? No. 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 So who is this for? Maybe. Whoever are reading this book in the last days. Right? It's for all of us who are reading this book in the last days. Are we in the last days? I would say so. So gather yourselves together and I will tell you what will happen in the Acharit's. Hayamim in the last days. Now, Tim, Timothy, and Paul, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. He says, he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. That people will be lovers of themselves, they'll be lovers of money, they'll be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous. They'll be without self-control. They'll be brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash. They'll be conceited. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. They'll have, no, so have nothing to do with such people. So Paul is giving us a little bit more of a hint of what it will be like in the last days. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it says, gather yourselves together. I'm going to tell you what it's going to be like in the last days. And then he says, kabats, which is like a symbol. Now this is where we get the word kibbutz. A kibbutz is in, in Israel. A kibbutz is a village. Uh, they, they started to be founded in like the 30s and 40s in Israel, 1930s and 40s in Israel. A kibbutz is a, is a gathering, an assembly of people that live together. And traditionally, kibbutzim in Israel are actually socialist. They live all in a communal state and there is no private property or anything like that. And they, they usually live in agrarian societies in a, like a hilltop or something like that. And they'll build a, a fence around it and everyone lives in there in a socialist kind of utopia, so to speak. That's changing now. There are a, lot of, a lot of them are privatizing. But that's the kibbutz. And there are many kibbutzim around Israel. They are, they're, their numbers are growing, but they're little, um, they're little villages. Okay, I want you to get that picture. He says, when you gather yourselves and when you kibbutz, when you have a kibbutz yourselves, listen, sons of Jacob, Shema Israel, your father. Now, 
there, there is this, um, I was reading this this morning and it hit me, you know, is this a hint at the pre-Messianic gathering of the, of the Jewish people in the, in the Jewish state of Israel? You know, there, there are Jews living in Israel right now that will say that Israel should not have been founded as a nation. Uh, some of the Haredim who live in Orthodox communities, ultra-Orthodox Jews, they'll actually say that the state of Israel is an abomination. But they'll take, like, uh, welfare checks from Israel, <laughs> of course. But, but there, there, are, there are Jews that say that Israel's founding is an act of God, is a miracle, and is supposed to be there. I agree with the latter. It's supposed to be there. It's part of God's plan, plan of restoration. But what's interesting about it is that when Israel was founded as a nation, it was founded as a socialist and secular state, primarily. And uh, Moshe Dayan and um, who was the first president? Prime Minister. Uh, Ben-Gurion, ben- 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 thank you. Ben-Gurion set aside some room for scholars of the Torah to study and to continue, but he didn't... He didn't foresee that population of Orthodox Jews who are living on the public dole to now be growing. And I think they're numbering about the, 14% of the population now identifies as Orthodox Jews in Israel. And they're having uh, dozens, of, dozens of kids. And they're quickly the fastest growing population. There's another sector of the Israeli population, which are uh, secular Jews, who don't, many of them don't believe in God or they're just nominally practicing the Jewish faith. Maybe just culturally practicing it. And their birth rate is very low. Many of them are actually practicing homosexuals. Uh, many of them are, are waiting much later in life to get married. And let's say they do have a traditional marriage. Even they are having very low birth rates. So if you fast forward 50 years from now, in Israel, you're going to have vast majority of the population of Israel is going to be Orthodox Jews who believe that Israel should be a, a ruled and governed as a theocratic state. And that's a lot of the turmoil that's happening right now in Israel and some of the reforms happening in the government. But it's interesting because that pre-Messianic gathering of Israel was one that was not founded, per se, on a fear of God. But rather, we're Jews. We need a safe place to live. Let's go to our homeland that was thousands of years ago, and let's found a nation there. But let's base it off of kind of the, a lot of the socialistic um, govern, governments of Europe. And that's how we will govern ourselves. Um, and there wasn't a lot of respect paid to, to Judaism or the Torah or scripture or anything like that. But it's interesting because if you look at these passages in light of that, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's fascinating. If you, look at, if you look at Israel, Israel is going to have to go through some seismic shifting before it turns to God. And, and Jeremiah talks about it. The prophet Jeremiah says that it will be a time called Jacob's trouble. Right, And I don't know, maybe this is hinting at that. I don't know, I don't want to dwell on it too much. But let's go to verse 3 now. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and my firstborn to my manhood. Through superior vigor and power, you are unstable as water. And you are, so your superior, superiority will come to an end. Because you climbed into your father's bed and defiled it. He climbed onto my concubine's couch. <clears throat> verse 5. Shimon and Levi are brothers related by weapons of violence. Remember that when they went into Shechem and they killed everyone in Shechem? Let me not enter into their council and let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men and at their whim they maimed cattle. Cursed be their anger for it has been fierce. Their fury for it has been cruel. 
I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Judah, your brothers will acknowledge you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's son will bow down before you. And Judah is like a lion cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness who dares to provoke him. The scepter, which is a symbol of kingship, right? It will not pass from the line of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs until Shiloh, or the one to whom obedience of the nations belongs, until Shiloh comes. And it is he whom the peoples will obey. And this is interesting because Yeshua obviously came from the tribe of Judah, right? He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it, and it look, I, I put a few weeks back, I put a slide about how many Christians are in the world, about two billion right now, right? Are calling him their king. And the majority of the Jewish world does not call him their king. And they actually call him Meshuggah. He's not, he's a false messiah. But I think it's interesting, though, that it's in a way fulfilling in him all the peoples will obey. Now, all these Christians aren't, they don't see eye to eye on everything, right? They don't obviously know the full extent of who Yeshua is, but that's okay. They will, right? But they're calling him king to some varying degree. Verse 11, tying his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice grapevine, he washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And this is, this is speaking very prophetically about the Shiloh character. Shiloh is this messianic character that's going to come, right? That's Yeshua, I believe. But talking also about there is an aspect of Yeshua that will be judge. That he will, he will arbitrate between people as well. Now let's pause here and say we're going to get in some very prophetic and cryptic stuff as we go through these blessings. If you want to make a fool of yourself, try this. Try to decipher these prophecies and uh, put them on the internet. It's a really sure way to make a fool of yourself. Prophecy is better read as history than it is as prophecy. And what do I mean by that? It's like people look at prophecy and, and God has sealed it up. And people look at it and they try to scratch and dig and, and understand it and, and un, un, untangle all the mysteries of prophecy in the Bible, in the book of Revelation especially. It's some people's favorite to do that. But I don't think we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to read the book of Revelation because there's a blessing that comes along with it. But I think we're supposed to use it more as a roadmap. So as we're going on our journey of life or through time or this process of God re- redeeming his people, we know the roadmap. We've read the roadmap and we familiarize ourselves with it. And we see certain benchmarks on the road. We can say, aha, that's, that's here. I know where we're at now. That's how we're supposed to look at prophecy. But that doesn't sell books, so I don't know. Now, as we go through these very cryptic and prophetic blessings, I'm not going to attempt to decipher them for you. I'm going to let you just study that throughout the week and do your best job at trying to decipher them. But it's important that we read them. Because this is what's going to happen What when? In the last days. In the Acharit Hayamim. The last days. Good. Yisachar. Or did I? I'm sorry. I skipped Zebulun. Sorry, Zebulun. Zebulun will live at the seashore with ships anchoring along his coast and his borders at Sidon. See, I want Zebulun's blessing. Just like, okay, leave me alone. I'm just doing the sea thing, you know. 
Very, very benign. Verse 14, Yisachar is a strong donkey lying down in the sheep sheds on seeing how good is settled life and how pleasant the country. He will bend his back to the burden and submit to forced labor. That sounds great. Verse 16, Dan will don. His name is judge. He will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And this is why some people speculate that this figure called the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ, will arise out. He will be a descendant of the tribe of Dan. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Dan will be a viper on the road, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's uh, heels. So its rider falls off backward. And then it says, I wait for your deliverance, O Lord. I'm sorry, I need to go to this slide. As we're reading this, we're seeing a chiastic structure. And chiastic structures are way that the, the author of this narrative and of these blessings, he, he is trying to point us to the middle, the middle candle of this structure. And this structure is like a menorah. If you can kind of see, it's got these different branches. And in the middle of the menorah is what we call the shamesh, the servant candle. But all these things, if you're looking at these, if you were paying attention, like some of you probably were, you notice that we're not going in birth order, are we? These are all scrambled up, but they're not really scrambled up. They're in a very meticulous order. And here's how they're ordered. Number one, we have Jacob's sons gathered to hear his words. And then later, Jacob is going to be gathered to his people. Then we see a prologue to the prophetic oracle. And then there's going to be an epilogue to the prophetic oracle. Leah's sons are going to be blessed by Jacob. And then later, Rachel's sons. Bilhah's first sons, and then Bilhah's second sons. In the middle, our Zilpah's sons are blessed. Now, what's in the very middle that we're supposed to see? Remember, I said every chiastic structure is leading you to the middle and making you look at the servant, the middle candle, the shamish, right? So what's in the middle? It says, I wait for your deliverance, O Lord. Now, if we saw this in the original language, in verse uh, verse 18, and it says, I wait for your deliverance, O Lord. That's smack dab in the middle of all these blessings. So here, right here, Zilpah's sons are blessed. And then further out there would be, I wait for your deliverance. It's a very important verse and very important we zoom in and, and allow the author to lead us into that servant candle. Because it says, Li Yeshua Techa Kiviti Adonai. What's in yellow? It's the name Yeshua. And that's significant for a couple of different reasons. Because in the middle of all this strife, in the middle of all these different blessings and prophecies we don't fully understand, in the middle of all this brotherly drama that they've had and everything, in the middle of the last days, we have the servant standing up. And it's saying, I wait for your salvation. I wait for not just your salvation, your Yeshua. That's why it's significant. Much later, obviously, a a Savior will come and what will be his name? Yeshua. Yeshua. Salvation. But also this is important because this is the very first time in the Bible this word, Yeshua, is used. It's right here in the middle of the blessing of the brothers. And that's supposed to catch our eye. That we're supposed to wait, and we're supposed to wait for Yeshua. And this, this word... Kivi, to wait, it's used all throughout the book of Psalms. I wait for your deliverance. I wait for your, your mercy. I wait for your hand. I wait for your salvation. It's all throughout the Psalms. So much of what we do and what we believe is dependent upon waiting, isn't it? Just waiting. When sometimes you're praying for a lost loved one, it's like, I want it right now. 
BK, have it your way. No. God's like, okay, wait, 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 Gabe, wait longer, right? Or you're like, man, I wish, I wish, sometimes one of my prayers, I always pray for Dothan Messianic Fellowship and, and is, a, is a place to call home. Uh, we've been renting this place for uh, better part of five years now. <clears throat> and we've had to move a couple times. In that room over there where we first started meeting in this, in this building, we had to shift ourselves in the, the direction that we faced four different times because we tried to fit more and more people in. And every time we shifted, we were able to fit like five or ten more people in. And finally, we're like, okay, this space out here did not have air conditioning. So we're like, okay, let's bite the bullet and, and buy air conditioning in here. And then we can maybe fit people in here. And then it's like, okay, now we're running out of parking. And my mom was telling me yesterday that she got, uh, last week she got blocked in and she's trying to figure out how to get out and all that stuff. And I was like, I know, mom, I know. I don't know what to do. And one of my prayers is like, God, can you provide something for us if it's your will? Even if it's like a big oak tree with some good shade, just something can you provide? Can you make it very clear to me? Um, and his answer apparently is always just wait. And I don't know what waiting will look like, but it's hard for Gabe Rutledge to wait. Um, years ago, I had a woman come up to me in this building and she says, the Lord told me to tell you that you will not be able to fit everyone in this building. And that was when we were maybe about 20 people that were meeting, 30 people that were meeting. I was like, wow, yeah, you're, you're crazy. But it's neat to see God's faithfulness in that. Um, but the first occurrence of this word Yeshua, and Yeshua in Mark 10 says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many. He is that center candle, isn't he? He's the servant. He's the light. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Gad, a troop. A troop will come from him, but he will troop on their heel. Asher's food is rich, and he will provide food fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Yosef is a fruitful plant. A fruitful plant by a spring, which branches climbing over, uh, climbing over the wall. And the archers attacked him fiercely, shooting at him and pressing him hard. But his bow remained taut, and his arms were made nimble by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, the from the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by El Shaddai who will bless you with blessings from far above heaven, from heaven above, I'm sorry, blessings from the deep lying below, blessings from the breast and the womb. The blessings of your father are more powerful than the blessings of my parents, extending to the farthest of the everlasting hills, and they will be on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the Nazir, the prince, among his brothers. That sounded nice. I'll take that blessing. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Oh no, another bad blessing. And the morning devouring the prey, and the evening still dividing the spoil. So all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is how their father spoke to them as he blessed them, giving each his own individual blessing. Can you imagine walking out of that room that day and being like, okay, did you guys get what he said? I'm a ravenous wolf or I'm like a beautiful fawn. Anybody catch that? But we've got to remember this is prophetic. It's talking about the last days. Verse 29, then he charged them as follows. I am to be gathered, a soft to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpelah by Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought together with the field from Ephron the Hittite, has a burial place belonging to him. 
So there they buried Avram and his wife Sarah, and they buried Yitzchak and his wife Rivka. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave in it, which was purchased from the sons of Chetz. When Yaakov had finished giving his sons these commands, these charges, he drew up his legs into this bed, and he breathed his last, and he was gathered via Saf, like from the same root, Yosef, to his people. That word gather is there so many times. Any time the people of Israel are gathered, the enemy tries to scatter. And this is the, one of the themes of this chapter is like, you will be gathered, but be ready when you are. Get ready in the last days. You will attempt it to be scattered. Remember, there was a, a leader of Iran that said, yeah, all the Jews come back to Israel so that when we send the uh, ICBM in, it takes out more, right? Such satanic language, isn't it? When you are gathered, my people, my people Israel, you will, people will attempt to rescatter. And that's the same principle for the body of Messiah. Whenever we are gathered, things and people and our pride or whatever attempts to scatter us, doesn't it? I hope that you're always about the business of trying to regather. It's, my heart is always regathering, regathering. And it's tough because, you know, I mean, I know we're all perfect and everything, right? Yeah. And it's really tough. So let me ask this. It's kind of dark. You can't really see it. But what is the central theme of this chapter, these closing chapters? Someone just spit out. What is you, what's the theme? If you, had to, if you had to summarize these two chapters down, what would you say it's about? Anything? Like, I don't know, I'm just hungry. The future of Israel. The future of Israel? And the blessing of the children. Blessing of the children. All right, Bob's frozen. What else? What's the theme of this? What about this, like, imparting words or warnings, right? Or lessons. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. If we had to call this these two chapters a movie, maybe we would call them mm, like warnings or best wishes or final wishes. You guys remember this movie that came out, I think it was in the 90s. It was called My Life with Michael Keaton in it. Have you ever seen this movie? No, no one has. Okay, Sarah, thank you, Sarah. We got it. Yeah, we're on the same page here. It don't watch it. It's, it's okay. But basically, no, basically... <laughs> Basically, this, um, this guy is diagnosed with a terminal illness. I think it's a kidney cancer. But his wife is also pregnant, and he has a very limited time to live. And he starts filming everything. He has an old VCR set up, a camcorder, and he starts filming videos of his life. And he starts giving these life lessons to his kid who he's never met, and he never will meet. Ooh, a spoiler alert. <laughs> but everything from like cooking scrambled eggs to reading Curious George books... Uh, playing tennis, all this stuff, and he, tying a tie, shaving. He does all these in these videos he's making. But that's kind of the essence of this. It's like Jacob is telling his sons, be prepared in this way. Get ready in that way. And these are the videos that I'm making for you. That will, it, This will transpire in the last days. Let me ask this question. We got parents in the room and grandparents in the room. If, if you just had a, like 30 seconds... What would you want to say to your kids? What would you ask them? What would you want to impart onto them? If you had a very limited time, 
And you know, okay, I'm about to draw my legs up from the bed and breathe my last. What would you say to your children? Have you asked your children? You know, they come to a certain age, like 10 years old or older, I don't know. Have you ever asked them, are you going to do what we do when you grow up? Are you going to follow the Lord like we follow him when you grow up? Have you ever thought to ask your kids that? If not, ask them. See what they say. And don't allow them to give you, you know, some patronizing answer. Like, yeah, of course. If they do, if they, if they say that, they're like, yeah, yeah. Then say, why? Why? Why are you going to follow the Lord like we follow the Lord? Why are you going to do it? Why are you going to internalize it and embody it? Ask these questions. Because, um, I, don't, I mean, and it gets them thinking. Am I going to? They may have never crossed their minds. Yeah, someday I'm not going to be kicked out of the bed on Saturday mornings and put this on, get ready to go, get to the car, get the crock pot, right? That's how my house is, right? I will move out of my parents' home at some point and I might have the choice of sleeping in on Saturdays and not going and hearing Mr. Gabe talk and all that stuff he's trying to teach us. Sounds kind of nice. But they'll have to make that choice, right? Ask your kids now. Ask them once a year. Ask them once a week. Are you going to do this? Why? Why are you going to do it? Right? Okay. Impart things onto your children. Say things to your children. Like I, I will say to my boys, look guys, I don't care what you do in life. I don't care how much money you make. As long as you serve the Lord with all your heart. Amen. You're a rich man. I'm rich because of that. That makes me proud. That is the currency that makes me proud. Right? I don't care other than that. Now, I may go over to your house later in life and raid your snacks like you raided mine in 18 years. But I don't care. Say things like that to your children. Impart things onto your children. And I think, I think we don't do that enough sometimes. So ask your kids this week, or your grandkids, will you do what I do? If so, why? And then impart words of blessing onto them. Some lessons I learned, like Ephraim and Manasseh, we too have been adopted out of Egypt and into the family in order to be raised and set apart for a new father. And just as Rachel's death brought this double fruitfulness, Ephraim and Manasseh, so too Messiah's death and resurrection brings a miraculous adoption and harvest, doesn't it? You see everybody sitting in this room? Right? And we read Galatians 4 earlier. And we now, because we are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. Many times, however, the fruitfulness of our decisions and our actions does not become evident until after we step away from the place where we might receive glory for it. Does that make sense? There's things where you're like, okay, I'm working hard, I'm working hard, okay, and then you step away from it, and then someone else comes in, and then bam, it happens, and you're like, okay, I can't take glory for that now, but God can, that's okay, that's what it's all about. So if you're praying for someone, or if you're striving for someone, if you're, if you're striving for something in your own life, a breakthrough of some kind, or a redeeming from something, start giving God glory for that in advance, maybe. So with that, I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to do some questions and answers. We have one more chapter left in Genesis, and we're going to cover it next week. It's very exciting. It's bittersweet, isn't it? Father, we thank you for your providence and in your word. Thank you that as we stand here in 2023, 
in what we believe to be the last days, that we've been given instructions. And we don't understand these instructions in this chapter necessarily. But Father, we know that the ultimate teacher came to us and instructed us. And if we follow his example, no matter how confused we are about how the end times may look, we know if we keep our eyes on the shepherd, we will be all right. We will have a share in your kingdom. May we rededicate ourselves to that today. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys have any questions or answers? We've got a few minutes. Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Can I take a sweet water? So Rachel died. But despite that, Jacob sees his son that he thought was dead and then his son's descendants. So it wasn't that Rachel's death caused the double fruitfulness. But rather, in a deep time of despair, Jacob gets to see the fulfillment and the promises that were given to him by El Shaddai lose. Does that answer your question? Okay. Anybody else have a thought or a question or comment? It's quiet today. I must have answered all those questions in advance that you brought. Yeah, Jackie. You want me to go back to that slide? Yeah. I skipped it. Right here. Uh, yeah, if, if we had it all written out, 18 would be in the middle of this here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'd be like, yeah. Yeah, if you had it all, oh, thank you. If you had it all written out, 18 would be in the middle. I think they just had to capture that. It's the latter half of the verse of 18, which would fall right here in the middle. Does that answer your question? Anybody else have a question or a comment they want to share? Mm-hmm. Insight? See it. Yeah, Brian? All right, so... Um you know, starts off with um, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and before you know all the deeds that they did, it didn't seem like there was any discipline. I guess mm-hmm. those things happened. Yeah. Here at the end, you know, it's kind of like the equal weights of measure. Yeah. This yeah. is you know now calling you account to account of your descendants, and then it, like even Judah. You know, uh, he left his father's house. But it's interesting to me that you know that starts to turn mm-hmm. at Judah. Yeah. Right? And so he actually elevates Judah. Yeah, yeah. Judah, yeah, and that's something I didn't really mention is that Judah, um, Judah is in a way receiving a blessing of a firstborn here. He's receiving a blessing of kingship from his father as as like the rightful firstborn in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, because, because I believe because of his repentant heart and offering himself in place of Benjamin because he really cared for the, the well-being of his father. He had a deep change and repentant heart in this story. So, good thought. Any other uh, questions or comments? All right. We're going to say the blessing over the... I'll be uh, around if you guys have more.